Presidents who hold back in the face of clear need are seen as distinctly unpresidential. Think Carter, Mm -hmm. think Hoover, Calvin Coolidge, silent Cal. It's not okay to be silent as the president. You need to be acting vigorously and doing so unapologetically. Imperial, unilateral, overreaching. These are just a few of the words that have been used to describe President Obama's recent actions on immigration. 24 states are now suing the president for overstepping his authority on deportation. Is this a constitutional crisis? Everyday partisan squabbling? Or something else altogether? Here to help us dissect that question is William Howell. He is the Sidney Stein Professor of American Politics at Chicago Harris. Professor Howell, thank you for helping us uh, navigate this prickly topic. Thanks very much. Professor Howell has written widely on separation of powers issues and American politics. As somebody who spent years scrutinizing the office of the presidency, he has a unique bird's eye view of executive power, where it's come from and where it's heading. Well, let's talk about uh, the jobs out there and how many of them will be taken by all the immigrants you're going to keep in this country. (laughs) You are, you realize you're an emperor now, it has been declared. You are Baracus Maximus I. I'm a Christian, would you like to throw me to the lions? I would be delicious. Why, Why did you, why did you burn the Constitution and become an emperor? Actually, Stephen, everything that we have done is scrupulously within the law and has been done by previous Democratic and Republican presidents. That is comedy pundit Stephen Colbert talking to President Obama in an unusual interview last week. That's tremendous. I love that. (laughs) Would you consider that a good example of the... Yes, it is. It's a remarkably good um, characterization of the debate. On the one hand, you've got critics saying... Again and again, they observe this gross abuse of executive authority, the rise of an imperial presidency. And on the other hand, presidents repeatedly claiming, look, this is all within my constitutional authority, and plenty of presidents have done it before. And the irony is that both sides may be right. So before we even get into that, uh, you've done a tremendous amount of work on presidential power and the kinds of things presidents do or do not choose to you know, take on. Did you see this coming? I don't think it's new. So in that sense, it, the, if you're talking about the immigration policies that have been advanced unilaterally, those are new in this particular policy domain. But presidents for many, many years have found ways to exercise authority absent explicit authorization by Congress. Um, and through really creative readings of both the Constitution and prior statutory law. Mm-hmm. And so what we observe is new policy being advanced by Obama, but the way in which it's being advanced isn't new at all. Mm-hmm. So to kind of frame this, what are the you know, legal precedents that a president can draw on if he wants to act unilaterally? Sure, sure. Well, we can think about there being a variety of types of executive authority. One is through constitutional authority. That is, provisions that are written into Article Two of the Constitution that give explicit powers to the president. The second would be statutory authority. And this has to do with laws enacted by Congress 
that grant explicit types of authority to presidents. And then the third are simply powers that presidents claim for themselves. They go out and they do stuff and they say, I did it because it's in the interests of the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. Say what Obama was saying, which is presidents have been doing this for a very long time and it's in the interests of the country. And I took an oath to uh, not just to uphold and protect the Constitution, but also to stand by the American people. This is about, right, I am the steward, as mm -hmm. uh, Teddy Roosevelt put it, I'm the steward of the American people. So you have these different types of authority that presidents right. can claim and draw upon, and then they can take different kinds of actions. They can engage Congress directly, but they can also do lots of stuff unilaterally. Executive orders, that's one thing they can do. They can also issue proclamations, national security directives, change rules, issue memoranda, all of which have policy content and change the doings of government in material ways, but that don't directly involve Congress. The president acts on his own and then puts the onus on Congress, the onus on the courts, to try to revise the new political landscape. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for Congress to do in a period of gridlock. Right. And so which of these things do or do not characterize the Obama presidency? I mean, is he, is he using kind of all the tools in his tool belt? Or, is or does he fit? Or does he fit does into he this fit? scheme? It's a fair question. So I'm going to say he's doing everything that he possibly can, but that you see an increasing willingness on his part to move more and more into this unilateral domain. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do I mean by that? I think Obama, like all presidents, assume office they recognize there for a short period of time, they want to build uh, up their legacy, which requires them to have a series of accomplishments that they can point to. And so they exercise power as much wherever they possibly can. And they draw upon whatever available sources of authority are sitting there for them. So if the Constitution is going to do it for them, they're going to say, the Constitution allows me to do this. If instead the Constitution and the statutory powers are put aside, they, they can't draw upon those in order to take some action that they would like to take, then they're going to say, I'm acting in the public interest. This is really about fulfilling the basic obligations that the state has to citizens. And they'll talk and use this kind of language. I think what you see over the course, broadly over the course of Obama's two terms in office, is a president who assumes office who at least outwardly expresses a willingness and an interest in engaging Congress for its own sake, mm -hmm. that he sees that greater cooperation would be good. And can't we set the old politics of division aside and recognize that we stand in common purpose in order to advance um, American interests, right? You heard this sort of language more often. Absolutely. And he just hit a brick wall again and again and again. You have this incredibly divided and polarized Congress, and a Republican majority after two years that he has to deal with in the House that is working doggedly to undermine his policy agenda. Okay, so what does he do? What he does is he changes his tack and starts saying things like, Congress, if you don't take this action, which is in the interests of the American people, then I will take it on my own. Because I have an obligation as the representative of the country as a whole to do what's right for the people, and I'm not going to just stand idly by. The actions that he's taking in immigration policy are an expression of that, um, but you see this in education policy, in environmental policy, in lots of different domains. And he, it's, it's giving Republicans in Congress fits. This is where a lot of the right arguments about the rise of an imperial presidency come from. Mm -hmm. 
But mind you, the same actions gave Democrats in office fits when George Bush was in office. And so in this way, Bush and Obama, and I would say modern presidents generally, exercise power in order to advance policy domains that can upset members of the opposition party, and they regularly do, and that there then is this debate that ensues about whether or not they were justified or not, but that what we see consistently across presidents is an interest in pushing outward on the boundaries of their power. That's what presidents do, mm -hmm. all presidents. So you make the case in your work that every president builds on the precedent of previous presidents to give himself more power. And the next president does the same. And so it kind of builds with each new leader. So what kind of novel contributions has Obama been making that the next guy, you know, will be able to use? Yeah, so I think it's, it's a great question. And it's a thing to look for in, in each president. Like, how is it, how, what is it that they're doing that's new? Mm -hmm. um, lots of what presidents do, what Obama is doing, is following paths that are well-trodden. And I think the politics of this unilateral action and immigration policy is such a domain. It's that in the face of congressional gridlock, they step in and interpret statutes and the enforcement powers that they provide in ways that suit their own policy interests. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm most struck by with Obama and the innovations that he's offered have less to do with immigration or even foreign policy, where there's lots of controversy about the actions that he's taking, involving drone strikes and the rise of right. Right, the um, efforts to gather intelligence on suspected terrorists, but rather in, in education policy. So what has he done? Two things I, I cast your attention towards. Um, the first is, as part of the Stimulus Act that was enacted just as soon as he was put into office, mm -hmm. he was able to acquire about $5 billion, which was a tiny fraction of the total value, seven, you know, on the order of $700 billion, the Stimulus Act. But there were $5 billion set aside for him to hold a competition, which he called Race to the Top, where states, in an effort to acquire federal funds, would make commitments to enact at the state level policies that the Obama administration wanted to see enacted, mm -hmm. policies having to do with charter schools and accountability, the development of um, data systems that would allow people to track students over time and across districts, these sorts of things. These kinds of legislations were not new, but they'd stalled. They'd stalled in Congress, they'd stalled in state legislatures. He holds this competition and is very explicit in the competition that their willingness to provide funds is going to be a function of the express commitment of states to enact the policies that he wanted to see enacted. And there ensues a dramatic increase in the adoption of these policies. It's incredible across the country, the rates at which these policies were adopted. They just skyrocketed in the, in the aftermath of this competition, right? So that struck me as new. I mean, the policy competitions, grant competitions aren't new, but ones that are as prescriptive as these, that are being directed by the, the, the president, that come sort of handed down from on high, and that yielded this huge impact on state-level policymaking is altogether new. That's one, I would say. The other, I would say, also in the area of education policy, has to do with the granting of waivers under No Child Left Behind. So No Child Left Behind is the signature domestic policy achievement uh, under Bush. Mm -hmm. And it established this accountability system 
that schools had to follow and that students that failed to demonstrate adequate yearly progress towards stated goals in achievement. If, if the school had enough of these students, they would qualify for a variety of interventions. So things like additional tutoring, the ability to move to different schools, and eventually the possible takeover and restructuring of a school. So you have mm -hmm. these potentially draconian interventions as a result of how kids are being tested. Right. Okay, so what happens? States are allowed to choose the rate at which they would expect students to become proficient in math and reading. But by 2014, read this year, all kids were supposed to become magically proficient. And what do you know? You look around and they're not. So these punishments are being applied to more and more schools around the country. And it looks like all schools are failing if you go by the rules under No Child Left Behind. Right. Now, years ago, five, six years ago, Congress was supposed to reauthorize and remake No Child Left Behind. It was set for just six years. They were meant to reauthorize it. They haven't. They've done nothing. But so what has Obama done? He stepped in and he has told states, look, these Dragonian punishments that you face, you no longer will have to face. I'm going to give you relief from them. And so you, the money will continue to flow and you won't have to take the kinds of actions that the federally enacted NCLB is telling you you have to take. Hooray. So that itself is pretty remarkable because what he's doing is intervening and dismantling, right? the accountability system that was erected by his predecessor state by state. But he's doing more. He's not just telling states, you can do these things. You can, I'm going to give you relief from this law. So I'm going to give you the relief from this law conditional upon your willingness to adopt statutes and adopt policies that I like and that may be only tangentially related to No Child Left Behind. And so what you have is a remaking, not just an undermining, but a remaking of what education policy looks like around the country that's done without Congress's formal consent. And so we're used to thinking about, well, these unilateral actions that presidents take, they take either with expressed statutory authority or in the face of statutory silence. Here's an instance where the president is stepping in and remaking the statute itself and doing so without Congress's formal involvement. That strikes me as a really big deal. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the degree of pushback from Congress or from the public is highly variable. And to some degree, I imagine it's the topics themselves. You know, immigration is very accessible and very hot, whereas the intricacies of like education policy can get very wonky very quickly. So what do you think accounts for the, the differing response to the administration's actions? Is it, just, is it just the level of awareness about these different topics, or is there something else going on? There's a part of that. I think a lot of the actions that presidents take unilaterally, they take rather quietly. Um, I think Obama's actions in environmental policy and his, his reading of extraordinary authority in the 1970 Clean Air Act as a basis for taking all kinds of actions has been, at least from the public standpoint, pretty quiet behind closed doors. Now. The businesses and industries that are being regulated, they've been well aware of these things because right. they're incurring the costs of these actions and they're taking all kinds of, they're making all kinds of efforts to fight back. Okay, so part of it has to do with transparency. I think a lot of it, though, has to do with simply whether or not others like the policy actions that the president's taking. Some they like, some they don't. Mm -hmm. And 
we see expressions of dissent that relate to how an action was taken. I don't like that Obama is taking action and sidestepping Congress and thereby circumventing and undermining the Constitution. Okay, so there's a lot of that kind of language, uh -huh. but I think what really drives people is whether or not you like the action itself. The reason why Democrats were upset with Bush and Republicans are upset with Obama is not because of the clear differences in how Bush and Obama were exercising power, but rather the purposes to which they were putting that power. That's what differs. And so um, the kind of pushback that a president's going to face then is going to be a function of how many political opponents he, someday she, maybe next term she, um, faces within the legislature, within the judiciary. So if you're looking out and you see a Congress filled with partisan opponents and they're poised to overturn every action you take, your ability to step out and vigorously advance a policy agenda unilaterally is going to be significantly constrained. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, that so much of this so-called debate comes down to just partisanship and to how rascally your opponents are choosing to be on a topic, uh, let's take the immigration order as a sort of discrete example. And you hinted at your hand earlier, but uh, is there good reason to think that Obama is, really is overstepping his bounds on immigration? Um, yeah, can you speak to that? So I'm not a constitutional law scholar, and as I understand it, he's on pretty solid ground when it comes to immigration policy, less solid ground when you think about some of the intelligence activities that have gone on, when you think about the use of drones to kill U.S. citizens abroad, right? What's the legality of that or not? I, I think... And I think that these legal considerations are important. They're worth paying attention to. There's secondary, though, to political considerations, which take the form, if I do this thing, can I get away with it? And that's fundamentally what presidents are concerned about, and that is a political question. Mm -hmm. Legal considerations play a part, but they're not the exclusive part of how the courts are going to intervene. The courts, too, as political bodies, are going to worry about a set of political issues. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly the case that for Congress, it's almost purely a political is, uh, issue. And I think for the American public broadly, libertarians and constitutional law scholars aside, the broad swath of the American public thinks about policy debates in policy terms, policy in partisan terms, in political terms. Yeah. And so when the president's thinking about what he can do, what he can get away with, he's, he's looking out at these other political actors, interest groups, Congress, the courts, the broader public and thinking, well, how are they likely to respond? Right. And I've been impressed or uh, surprised with how transparent Obama has been about that. I mean, he told a reporter, I asked the office legal counsel to give me their best ruling on how much legal authority I had, and we stretched as far as we could. You know, he's yes. just... <laughs> yeah, they do this unapologetically. Unapologetically. But we expect that of our presidents, Right? I mean, this is where we expect presidents to do everything they possibly can to advance meaningful change. The presidents, and this is sort of one of the running themes of, of, of my book, Thinking About the Presidency, um, presidents who hold back in the face of clear need are presidents who are seen as distinctly unpresidential. And they're the presidents who are really repudiated. Think Carter, mm -hmm. think Hoover, think Buchanan, Calvin Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge right? Silent cow. It's not okay to be silent as the president. You need to be acting vigorously and pushing and and doing so unapologetically. That's right. That's a, that's not a that's not a boast, that quote that you read. That's a right. recognition of what the American public expects of presidents.
So as you've mentioned, it's good to look at presidential power in the context of a trajectory. So what do you expect to to see happening going forward? What's what's next, so to speak? Well, if a Republican, here's a thing to watch, I think. If a Republican wins office in the next term, the effort to push back the Affordable Care Act is going to become even more pronounced. And it's going to become more pronounced in the following way. It isn't that um, the ACA, Obamacare, is going to be formally repudiated legislatively. They're not going to pass a law that says now the ACA is dead. Rather, I don't think it's crazy to think that a Republican president might not offer waivers to states to avoid some of the the larger demands of the ACA upon states as long as they're willing to adopt different kinds of policy of their own. And what will that Republican president do? He'll point to Obama and his actions when it comes to uh, the NCLB, the No Child Left Behind Act, as establishing precisely the precedent needed to do this, right? So I think that's a thing to watch. That's why I say this innovation that Obama is making and that may be paying dividends in the policy, in education policy for him today, may work against come him tomorrow. To Might come back to bite, exactly. So I think that's a thing to, to watch. I think the other thing that we, we should be paying a lot of attention to and thinking a lot about are what might formal, reliable constraints on presidents' powers over intelligence. What might they look like? There are lots of reasons to believe that Congress is completely ill-equipped to monitor this particular policy domain. And what we've relied upon thus far primarily are just leaks. Leaks do something. But if I were in the business of thinking about how might, and I were worried about, on a principled way, about the rise and expansion of executive authority, this is a domain in which I put a lot of, I'd scratch my head over a lot, try to think about what would institutional constraints in this particular domain look like, that would re, which would work reliably because they would be rooted in a set of political constraints, not just a set of legal ones. One of your central conclusions is that every president gives himself a little more power than the last guy and is kind of building in this way. Can you, can you give a few concrete examples of if Calvin Coolidge or Hoover or any of these guys were facing the things that Obama's facing today, how would they have been constrained to act differently? I think they would have been propelled to act more vigorously than they did. This is in, in part, what I'm describing is in part a feature of the modern presidency, FDR onward, right? So with Obama, I don't think Obama exercises power with zeal. I don't think he assumed the office thinking, I want to be a king because I reap some sort of, you know, it gives me a thrill to exercise power. He, he himself was a constitutional law professor here at the University of Chicago. And I think he, he has thought, I'm sure he has thought deeply about the pathologies that can arise from a president exercising too much power. But when there's a difference between having those views when you're outside of office and holding on to those views when you're in office, when you actually sit where the president sits. And I think if a Calvin Coolidge were to assume office today, he, would be, he wouldn't be taking those naps. He would be forced to do a lot of things um, and he would be to, that, that may not come naturally to him, but that he wouldn't have much choice about. And in that sense, what I'm describing is a feature of the institution more than it is a feature of the individuals who inhabit the institution. Yeah. And where do you see that institution, you know, in, in a 50 or 100 years, if you feel like you even can speculate? Will decisions be made in a fundamentally different way as 
presidents add more and more and more to the precedent of power? So I think that the trends that we've been observing over the last 30 to 40 years are going to continue. And that is what we're going to see is that Congress is going to play the role primarily of, a, of being a reactive body, watching and monitoring and screaming and hollering when things go wrong, trying to set limits, trying to demarcate places where it's not okay for the federal government to get involved, cutting funding, these kinds of things. Congress is good at these sorts of things. What they're not so good at is offering clear, coherent vision about how to deal with policies that are national and international in scope. And the job of attending to those issues positively is going to become increasingly the province of the executive branch. We've seen this over the last 30, 40 years, not just with regard to the president, but agency policymaking and rulemaking. More and more, that's where the action is, and Congress is playing the role of a reactive body. I think those trends are going to continue, particularly when you think about big, hard, trenchant social problems on the scope of climate change, immigration policy being another one, tax reform, how to address persistent and rising inequality, these really hard problems that are national and, and, and in some cases international in scope are, require a kind of leadership that isn't to be found in, within Congress. And so we're going to see increasingly, I think, the executive branch becoming the first branch of government. So I think you know, we're just on the heels of a, a midterm election, and the Republicans picked up the Senate. And there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the Democratic Party is on its heels and this resurgence of the Republican Party. And it seems to me the action, for all the reasons we've just discussed, the action really is in the 2016 presidential election. That's the thing to watch. The, the direction of policy is going to change or it's going to continue largely on the same path, primarily as a function not of whether or not who holds the House or the Senate, but who's in the White House. It's, that's where the big money is. My own view is that we are right on a knife edge, with huge divisions ideologically about where the country should go, and what's going to tip things one way or the other is going to really be a function of who wins the White House. Precisely because the Republicans are in control of both chambers of Congress, there's a good chance that the Democrat is going to take it then in 2016. And if, by chance, instead it's Jeb Bush and Jeb Bush wins and we have a period of unified government, I think the bet to make for the midterm elections thereafter is the Democrats are going to regain one of those two chambers. This is the, the game we're playing. We're just right on a knife edge. and we, each, each branch is balancing the other. And like I said, I think the, 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 the big payoff is who wins the presidency. So you've done a very nice job of describing all of this very academically, very objectively, uh, is there any reason we should be worried about this trend toward the unilateral presidency? So, no, I don't think that we should be concerned. I think that it's good for our politics that what you get out of Congress is either gridlock or policy that is addresses local concerns but to the exclusion of national concerns. And I take it as a good thing that presidents are rising to the fore because I think there's, it's in presidents that we can hope to find the kind of leadership needed to address big, trenchant social problems. This isn't just me saying this. This goes back to the progressives who were recognizing with the rise of industrialism, 
um, increasing immigration, the emergence of the United States onto the world stage, that they needed to get into the business during the progressive era of institutional change. And one of the many things they then pushed for is a, a, a surge in, in executive authority. They put their money on the president to the exclusion of Congress. Um, I would do the same. Professor Howell, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks. This was fun. I hope we can do it again. That concludes this presidential episode of Radio Harris. We are delighted to announce that Radio Harris is now on iTunes and Stitcher, as well as SoundCloud. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, you can also share with a friend or write us a review on iTunes. This episode was produced by me, Jake Smith, with music from A Smile from Timbuktu and Christian Bjorklund. Until next time, this is Radio Harris.